Chapter Three of Moods by Louisa May Alcott. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laura Riley. Moods by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter Three Afloat. Sylvia sat sewing in the sunshine with an expression on her face half mirthful, half melancholy, as she looked backward to the girlhood just ended and forward to the womanhood just beginning, for on that midsummer day she was eighteen. Voices roused her from her reverie, and, looking up, she saw her brother approaching with two friends, their neighbor Geoffrey Moore and his guest, Adam Warwick. Her first impulse was to throw down her work and run to meet them, her second to remember her new dignity and sit still, awaiting them with well-bred composure, quite unconscious that the white figure among the vines added a picturesque finish to the quiet summer scene. They came up warm and merry, with a brisk row across the bay, and Sylvia met them with a countenance that gave a heartier welcome than her words. As she greeted the neighbor cordially, the stranger courteously, and began to gather up her work when they seated themselves in the bamboo chairs scattered about the wide piazza. "'You need not disturb yourself,' said Mark. "'We are only making this a way-station, and route for the studio. Can you tell me where my knapsack is to be found? After one of Prue's stowages, nothing short of a divining-rod will discover it, I'm afraid.' "'I know where it is. Are you going away again so soon, Mark?' only a two days trip up the river with these mates of mine no sylvia it can't be done i did not say anything not in words but you looked a whole volley of can't i goes and i answered it no girl but you would dream of such a thing you hate picnics and as this will be a long and rough one don't you see how absurd it would be for you to try it i don't quite see it mark for this would not be an ordinary picnic, it would be like a little romance to me, and I had rather have it than any birthday present you could give me. We used to have such happy times together before we were grown up. I don't like to be so separated now. But if it is not the best, I'm sorry that I even looked a wish. Sylvia tried to keep both disappointment and desire out of her voice as she spoke, though a most intense longing had taken possession of her when she heard of a projected pleasure so entirely after her heart. But there was an unconscious reproach in her last words, a mute appeal in the wistful eyes that looked across the glittering bay to the green hills beyond. Now, Mark was both fond and proud of the younger sister, who, while he was studying art abroad, had studied nature at home, till the wayward but winning child had bloomed into a most attractive girl. He remembered her devotion to him, his late neglect of her, and longed to make atonement. With elevated eyebrows and inquiring glances, he turned from one friend to another. Moore nodded and smiled, Warwick nodded and sighed privately, and having taken the sense of the meeting by a new style of vote, Mark suddenly announced, 
you can go if you like, Sylvia.' "'What?' cried his sister, starting up with a characteristic impetuosity that sent her basket tumbling down the steps, and crowned her dozing cat with Prue's nightcap frills. "'Do you mean it, Mark? Wouldn't it spoil your pleasure, Mr. Moore? Shouldn't I be a trouble, Mr. Warwick? Tell me frankly, for if I can go I shall be happier than I can express.' The gentleman smiled at her eagerness, but as they saw the altered face she turned toward them, each felt already repaid for any loss of freedom they might experience hereafter, and gave unanimous consent, upon receipt of which Sylvia felt inclined to dance about the three and bless them audibly, but restrained herself and beamed upon them in a state of wordless gratitude pleasant to behold. Having given a rash consent, Mark now thought best to offer a few obstacles to enhance its value and try his sister's mettle. "'Don't ascend into the air like a young balloon, child, but hear the conditions upon which you go, for if you fail to work three miracles, it is all over with you. Firstly, the consent of the higher powers, for father will dread all sorts of dangers. You are such a freakish creature.' and Prue will be scandalized because trips like this are not the fashion for young ladies. "'Consider that point settled and go on to the next,' said Sylvia, who, having ruled the house ever since she was born, had no fears of success with either father or sister. "'Secondly, you must do yourself up in as compact a parcel as possible, for though you little women are very ornamental on land, you are not very convenient for transportation by water. Cambric gowns and French slippers are highly appropriate and agreeable at the present moment, but must be sacrificed to the stern necessities of the case. You must make a dowdy of yourself in some usefully short, scant, dingy costume, which will try the nerves of all beholders, and triumphantly prove that women were never meant for such excursions." "'Wait five minutes, and I'll triumphantly prove you to the contrary,' answered Sylvia, as she ran into the house. Her five minutes was sufficiently elastic to cover fifteen, for she was ravaging her wardrobe to effect her purpose and convince her brother, whose artistic taste she consulted, with the skill that did her good service in the end. Rapidly assuming a grey gown, with a jaunty jacket of the same, she kilted the skirt over one of green, the pedestrian length of which displayed boots of uncompromising thickness. Over her shoulder, by a broad ribbon, she slung a prettily wrought pouch and ornamented her hat pilgrim-wise with a cockle-shell. Then, taking her brother's alpenstock, she crept down, and standing in the doorway, presented a little figure all in grey and green, like the earth she was going to wander over, and a face that blushed and smiled and shone as she asked demurely, "'Please, Mark, am I picturesque and convenient enough to go?' He wheeled about and stared approvingly, forgetting cause and effect, till Warwick began to laugh like a merry bass viol, and Moore joined him, saying, "'Come, Mark, own that you are conquered.' and let us turn our commonplace voyage into a pleasure pilgrimage, 
with a lively lady to keep us knights and gentlemen wherever we are. I say no more, only remember, Sylvia, if you get burnt, drowned, or blown away, I'm not responsible for the damage, and shall have the satisfaction of saying, There, I told you so. That satisfaction may be mine when I come home quite safe and well, replied Sylvia serenely. Now for the last condition. Warwick looked with interest from the sister to the brother, for, being a solitary man, domestic scenes and relations possessed the charm of novelty to him. Thirdly, you are not to carry a boatload of luggage, cloaks, pillows, silver forks, or a dozen napkins, but are to fare as we fare, sleeping in hammocks, barns, or on the bare ground, without shrieking at bats, or bewailing the want of mosquito netting, eating when, where, and what is most convenient, and facing all kinds of weather, regardless of complexion, dishevelment, and fatigue. If you can promise all this, be here loaded and ready to go off at six o'clock tomorrow morning. After which cheerful picture of the joys to come, Mark marched away to his studio, taking his friends with him. Sylvia worked the three miracles, and at half-past five a.m. was discovered sitting on the piazza, with her hammock rolled into a twine sausage at her feet, her hat firmly tied on, her scrip packed, and her staff in her hand. "'Waiting till called for,' she said, as her brother passed her, late and yawning as usual. As the clock struck six, the carriage drove round, and Moore and Warwick came up the avenue in nautical array. Then arose a delightful clamor of voices, slamming of doors, hurrying of feet, and frequent peals of laughter, for everyone was in holiday spirits, and the morning seemed made for pleasuring. Mr. Yule regarded the voyagers with an aspect as benign as the summer sky overhead. Prue ran to and fro, pouring forth a stream of counsels, warnings, and predictions. Men and maids gathered on the lawn or hung out of upper windows, and even old Hecate, the cat, was seen chasing imaginary rats and mice in the grass till her yellow eyes glared with excitement. All in, was announced at last, and as the carriage rolled away, its occupants looked at one another with faces of blithe satisfaction that their pilgrimage was so auspiciously begun. A mile or more up the river, the large, newly painted boat awaited them. The embarkation was a speedy one, for the cargo was soon stowed in lockers and under seats, Sylvia forwarded to her place in the bow. Mark, as commander of the craft, took the helm. Moore and Warwick, as crew, sat waiting orders, and Hugh, the coachman, stood ready to push off at word of command. Presently it came, a strong hand sent them rustling through the flags, down dropped the uplifted oars, and with a farewell cheer from a group upon the shore, the Kelpie glided out into the stream. Sylvia, too full of genuine content to talk, sat listening to the musical dip of well-pulled oars, watching the green banks on either side, dabbling her hands in the eddies as they rippled by, and singing to the wind 
as cheerful and serene as the river that gave her back a smiling image of herself. What her companions talked of, she neither heard nor cared to know, for she was looking at the great picture-book that always lies ready for the turning of the youngest or the oldest hands, was receiving the welcome of the playmates she best loved, and was silently yielding herself to the power which works all wonders with its benignant magic. Hour after hour she journeyed along the fluent road, under bridges where early fishers lifted up their lines to let them through, past gardens tilled by unskillful townsmen who harvested an hour of strength to pay the daily tax the city levied on them, past honeymoon cottages where young wives walked with young husbands in the dew, or great houses shut against the morning. Lovers came floating down the stream with masterless rudder and trailing oars. College race-boats shot by with modern Greek choruses in full blast and the frankest criticisms from their scientific crews. Fathers went rowing to and fro with argosies of pretty children who gave them gay good morrows. Sometimes they met fanciful nutshells manned by merry girls who made for sure at sight of them with most erratic movements and novel commands included in their art of navigation. Now and then some poet or philosopher went musing by, fishing for facts or fictions, where other men catch pickerel or perch. All manner of sights and sounds greeted Sylvia, and she felt as if she were watching a panorama painted in watercolors by an artist who had breathed into his work the breath of life and given each figure power to play its part. Never had human faces looked so lovely to her, for morning beautified the plainest with its ruddy kiss. Never had human voices sounded so musical to her, for daily cares had not yet brought discord to the instruments, tuned by sleep and touched by sunshine into pleasant sound. Never had the whole race seemed so near and dear to her, for she was unconsciously pledging all she met in that genuine elixir vitae, which sets the coldest blood aglow and makes the whole world kin. Never had she felt so truly her happiest self, for of all the costlier pleasures she had known, not one had been so congenial as this as she rippled farther and farther up the stream and seemed to float into a world whose airs brought only health and peace. Her comrades wisely left her to her thoughts, a smiling silence for their figurehead, and none among them but found the day fairer and felt himself fitter to enjoy it for the innocent companionship of maidenhood and a happy heart. At noon they dropped anchor under a wide-spreading oak that stood on the river's edge, a green tent for wanderers like themselves, where they ate their first meal spread among white clovers, with a pair of squirrels staring at them as curiously as human spectators ever watched royalty at dinner, while several meek cows courteously left their guests the shade and went away to dine at a side-table spread in the sun. 
they spent an hour or two talking or drowsing luxuriously on the grass then the springing up of a fresh breeze roused them all and weighing anchor they set sail for another port now sylvia saw new pictures for leaving all traces of the city behind them they went swiftly countryward sometimes by hayfields each an idol in itself with white-sleeved mowers all a row the pleasant sound of wetted scythes great loads rumbling up lanes with brown-faced children shouting atop rosy girls raising fragrant windrows or bringing water for thirsty sweethearts leaning on their rakes often they saw ancient farmhouses with mossy roofs and long well-sweeps suggestive of fresh droughts and the drip of brimming pitchers orchards and cornfields rustling on either hand and grandmotherly caps at the narrow windows or stout matrons tending babies in the doorway as they watched smaller selves playing keep house under the laylocks by the wall villages like white flocks slept on the hillsides martinbach's schoolhouses appeared here and there astir with busy voices alive with wistful eyes and more than once they came upon little mermen bathing who dived with sudden splashes like a squad of turtles tumbling off a sunny rock then they went floating under vernal arches where a murmurous rustle seemed to whisper stay along shadowless sweeps where the blue turned to gold and dazzled with its unsteady shimmer past islands so full of birds they seemed green cages floating in the sun or doubled capes that opened long vistas of light and shade through which they sailed into the pleasant land where summer reigned supreme to sylvia it seemed as if the inhabitants of these solitudes had flocked down to the shore to greet her as she came fleets of lilies unfurled their sails on either hand and cardinal flowers waved their scarlet flags among the green the sagittaria lifted its blue spears from arrowy leaves wild roses smiled at her with blooming faces meadow lilies rang their flame-colored bells and clematis and ivy hung garlands everywhere as if hers were a floral progress and each came to do her honor her neighbors kept up a flow of conversation as steady as the rivers and sylvia listened now insensibly the changeful scenes before them recalled others and in the friendly atmosphere that surrounded them these reminiscences found free expression each of the three had been fortunate in seeing much of foreign life each had seen a different phase of it and all were young enough to still be enthusiastic accomplished enough to serve up their recollections with taste and skill and give sylvia glimpses of the world through spectacles sufficiently rose-colored to lend it the warmth which even truth allows to her sister romance the wind served them till sunset then the sail was lowered and the rowers took to their oars sylvia demanded her turn and wrestled with one big oar while warwick sat behind and did the work having blistered her hands and given herself as fine a color as any on her brother's palate she professed herself satisfied 
and went back to her seat to watch the evening red transfigure earth and sky, making the river and its banks a more royal pageant than splendor-loving Elizabeth ever saw along the Thames. Anxious to reach a certain point, they rode on into the twilight, growing stiller and stiller, as the deepening hush seemed to hint that nature was at her prayers. Slowly the Kelpie floated along the shadowy way, and as the shores grew dim, the river dark with leaning hemlocks or an overhanging cliff, Sylvia felt as if she were making the last voyage across that fathomless stream where a pale boatman plies and many go lamenting. The long silence was broken first by Moore's voice, saying, Adam, sing! If the influences of the hour had calmed Mark, touched Sylvia, and made Moore long for music, they had also softened Warwick. Leaning on his oar, he lent the music of a mellow voice to the words of a German Volkslied, and launched a fleet of echoes such as any tuneful vintager might have sent floating down the Rhine. Sylvia was no weeper, but as she listened, all the day's happiness which had been pent up in her heart found vent in sudden tears, that streamed down noiseless and refreshing as a warm south rain. Why they came she could not tell, for neither song nor singer possessed the power to win so rare a tribute. And at another time she would have restrained all visible expression of this indefinable yet sweet emotion. Mark and Moore had joined the burden of the song, and when that was done took up another, but Sylvia only sat and let her tears flow while they would, singing at heart, though her eyes were full and her cheeks wet faster than the wind could kiss them dry. After frequent peerings and tackings here and there, Mark at last discovered the haven he desired, and with much rattling of oars, clanking of chains, and splashing of impetuous boots, a landing was effected, and Sylvia found herself standing on a green bank with her hammock in her arms, and much wonderment in her mind whether the nocturnal experiences in store for her would prove as agreeable as the daylight ones had been. Mark and Moore unloaded the boat and prospected for an eligible sleeping place. Warwick, being an old campaigner, set about building a fire, and the girl began her sylvan housekeeping. The scene rapidly brightened into light and color as the blaze sprang up, showing the little kettle slung gypsy-wise on forked sticks, and the supper prettily set forth in a leafy table service on a smooth, flat stone. Soon four pairs of wet feet surrounded the fire, an agreeable oblivion of meum and tuum concerning plates, knives, and cups did away with etiquette, and every one was in a comfortable state of weariness, which rendered the thought of bed so pleasant that they deferred their enjoyment of the reality, as children keep the best bite till last. "'What are you thinking of here, all by yourself?' asked Mark, coming to lounge on his sister's plaid, which she had spread somewhat apart from the others, and where she sat watching the group 
before her with a dreamy aspect. "'I was watching your two friends. See what a fine study they make with the red flicker of the fire on their faces and the background of dark pines behind them. They did make a fine study, for both were goodly men, yet utterly unlike, one being of the heroic type, the other of the poetic. Warwick was a head taller than his friend, broad-shouldered, strong-limbed, and bronzed by wind and weather. A massive head, covered with rings of ruddy brown hair, gray eyes that seemed to pierce through all disguises, an eminent nose, and a beard like one of Mark's stout saints. Power, intellect, and courage were stamped on face and figure, making him the manliest man that Sylvia had ever seen. He leaned against the stone, yet nothing could have been less reposeful than his attitude, for the native unrest of the man asserted itself in spite of weariness or any soothing influence of time or place. Moore was much slighter, and betrayed in every gesture the unconscious grace of the gentleman born. A most attractive face, with its broad brow, serene eyes, and the cordial smile about the mouth. A sweet, strong nature, one would say, which, having used life well, had learned the secret of a true success. Inward tranquillity seemed his, and it was plain to see that no wave of sound, no wandering breath, no glimpse of color, no hint of night or nature, was without its charm and its significance for him. "'Tell me about that man, Mark. I have heard you speak of him since you came home, but supposing he was some blousy artist, I never cared to ask about him. Now I've seen him, I want to know more,' said Sylvia, as her brother laid himself down after an approving glance at the group opposite. "'I met him in Munich when I first went abroad,' and since then we have often come upon each other in our wanderings. He never writes, but goes and comes, intent upon his own affairs. Yet one never can forget him, and is always glad to feel the grip of his hand again. It seems to put such life and courage into one. "'Is he good?' asked Sylvia, woman-like, beginning with the morals. "'Violently virtuous. He is a masterful soul.' bent on living out his beliefs and aspirations at any cost, much given to denunciation of wrongdoing everywhere, and eager to execute justice upon all offenders, high or low. Yet he possesses great nobility of character, great audacity of mind, and leads a life of the sternest integrity. Is he rich? In his own eyes, because he makes his wants so few. Is he married? No, he has no family, and not many friends, for he says what he means in the bluntest English, and few stand the test his sincerity applies. What does he do in the world? Studies it, as we do in books, dives into everything, analyzes character, and builds up his own with materials which will last. If that's not genius, it's something better. Then he will do much good and be famous, won't he? Great good to many, but never will be famous, I fear. He is too fierce an iconoclast to suit the old party, 
too individual a reformer to join the new, and being born a century too soon, must bide his time or play out his part before stage and audience are ready for him. Is he learned? Very, in uncommon sorts of wisdom. Left college after a year of it, because it could not give him what he wanted, and taking the world for his university, life for his tutor, says he shall not graduate till his term ends with days. I know I shall like him very much. I hope so, for my sake. He is a grand man in the rough, and an excellent tonic for those who have courage to try him. Sylvia was silent, thinking over all she had just heard and finding much to interest her in it, because, to her imaginative and enthusiastic nature, there was something irresistibly attractive in the strong, solitary, self-reliant man. Mark watched her for a moment, then asked with lazy curiosity, "'How do you like this other friend of mine?' "'He went away when I was such a child that since he came back I've had to begin again. But if I like him at the end of another month as much as I do now, I shall try to make your friend my friend.' because I need such an one very much. Mark laughed at the innocent frankness of his sister's speech, but took it as she meant it, and answered soberly, Better leave platonics till you're forty. Though Moore is twelve years older than yourself, he is a young man still, and you are grown a very captivating little woman. Sylvia looked both scornful and indignant. You need have no fears, there is such a thing as true and simple friendship between men and women, and if I can find no one of my own sex who can give me the help and happiness I want, why may I not look for it anywhere and accept it in whatever shape it comes? You may, my dear, and I'll lend a hand with all my heart, but you must be willing to take the consequences in whatever shape they come, said Mark, not ill-pleased with the prospect his fancy conjured up. "'I will,' replied Sylvia loftily, and fate took her at her word. Presently, someone suggested bed, and the proposition was unanimously accepted. "'Where are you going to hang me?' asked Sylvia, as she laid hold of her hammock, and looked about her with nearly as much interest as if her suspension was to be of the perpendicular order." You are not to be swung up in a tree tonight, but laid like a ghost, and requested not to walk till morning. There is an unused barn close by, so we shall have a roof over us for one night longer, answered Mark, playing Chamberlain when the others remained to quench the fire and secure the larder. An early moon lighted Sylvia to bed, and when shown her half the barn, which, as she was a marine, and was very properly the bay, Mark explained. She scouted the idea of being nervous or timid in such rude quarters, made herself a cosy nest, and bade her brother a merry good night. More weary than she would confess, Sylvia fell asleep at once, despite the novelty of her situation and the noises that fill a summer night with fitful rustlings and tones. How long she slept she did not know, but woke suddenly and sat erect with that curious thrill which sometimes startles one out of deepest slumber, and is often the forerunner of some dread or danger. 
she felt this hot tingle through blood and nerves, and stared about her thinking of fire. But everything was dark and still, and after waiting a few moments she decided that her nest had been too warm, for her temples throbbed and her cheeks were feverish with the close air of the barn half-filled with new-made hay. Creeping up a fragrant slope, she spread her plaid again and lay down where a cool breath flowed through wide chinks in the wall. Sleep was slowly returning, when the rustle of footsteps scared it away and set her heart beating fast, for they came toward the new couch she had chosen. Holding her breath, she listened. The quiet tread drew nearer and nearer, till it paused within a yard of her. Then someone seemed to throw themselves down, sigh heavily a few times, and grow still as if falling asleep. It is Mark, thought Sylvia, and whispered his name. But no one answered, and from the other corner of the barn she heard her brother muttering in his sleep. Who was it then? Mark had said there were no cattle near. She was sure neither of her comrades had left their bivouac, for there was her brother talking as usual in his dreams. Someone seemed restless and turned often with decided motion. That was Warwick, she thought, while the quietest sleeper of the three betrayed his presence by laughing once with the low-toned merriment she recognized as Moore's. These discoveries left her a prey to visions of grimy strollers, maudlin farm servants, and infectious emigrants in dismal array. A strong desire to cry out possessed her for a moment, but was checked, for with all her sensitiveness Sylvia had much common sense and that spirit which hates to be conquered even by a natural fear. She remembered her scornful repudiation of the charge of timidity and the endless jokes she would have to undergo if her mysterious neighbor should prove some harmless wanderer or an imaginary terror of her own. So she held her peace, thinking valiantly as the drops gathered on her forehead and every sense grew painfully alert. I'll not call if my hair turns gray with fright, and I find myself an idiot tomorrow. I told them to try me, and I won't be found wanting at the first alarm. I'll be still, if the thing does not touch me till dawn, when I shall know how to act at once, and so save myself from ridicule at the cost of a wakeful night. Holding fast to this resolve, Sylvia lay motionless, listening to the cricket's chirp without, and taking uncomfortable notes of the state of things within, for the newcomer stirred heavily, sighed long and deeply, and seemed to wake often, like one too sad or weary to rest. She would have been wise to have screamed her scream and had the rout over, for she tormented herself with the ingenuity of a lively fancy, and suffered more from her own terrors than at the discovery of a dozen vampires. Every tale of diablerie she had ever heard came most inopportunely to haunt her now, and though she felt their folly, she could not free herself from their dominion. She wondered till she could wonder no longer what the morning would show her. She tried to calculate in how many springs she could reach and fly over the low partition which separated her from her sleeping bodyguard. She wished with all her heart 
that she had stayed in her nest which was nearer the door, and watched for dawn with eyes that ached to see the light. In the midst of these distressful sensations, the far-off crow of some vigilant chanticleer assured her that the short summer night was wearing away, and relief was at hand. This comfortable conviction had so good an effect that she lapsed into what seemed a moment's oblivion, but was in fact an hour's restless sleep, for when her eyes unclosed again, the first red streaks were visible in the east, and a dim light found its way into the barn through the great door which had been left ajar for air. An instant Sylvia lay collecting herself, then rose on her arm, looked resolutely behind her, stared with round eyes a moment, then dropped down again, laughing with merriment, which, coming on the heels of her long alarm, was rather hysterical. All she saw was a little soft-eyed Alderney, which lifted its stag-like head and regarded her with a confiding aspect that won her pardon for its innocent offence. Through the relief of both mind and body, which she experienced in no small degree, the first thought that came was a thankful, "'What a mercy I didn't call Mark, for I should never have heard the last of this!' And having fought her fears alone, she enjoyed her success alone, and girl-like resolved to say nothing of her first night's adventures. Gathering herself up, she crept nearer and caressed her late terror, which stretched its neck toward her with a comfortable sound, and munched her shawl like a cosset lamb. But before this new friendship was many minutes old, Sylvia's heavy lids fell together, her head dropped lower and lower, her hand lay still on the dappled neck, and with a long sigh of weariness she dropped back upon the hay, leaving little Alderney to watch over her much more tranquilly than she had watched over it. End of chapter 3